Welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. We're going to start this morning with a question. Actually, I need your help with this because I want to to flesh this question out with some answers that are relevant to to who we are, what we've we've personally experienced or what we've observed. And so um, the question is this. The question is, what barriers or obstacles keep people from becoming followers of Jesus? What barriers or obstacles keep people from becoming a follower or a disciple of Jesus, we might say. So um, we're going to answer that in a couple ways. One, if you're here on campus, we'll just have a chance to just shout out here in the room. Uh, If you're joining online, if you uh, type that into, depending on which of the platforms you're using to join, if you uh, type that into the chat box that's in your platform, uh, hopefully we, we will be able to get it from there to this screen here. So, um... This could be, so as you think about how to answer that question, this could be based on your experience of your own discipleship, your own uh, choice, whether or not you would be, become a follower of Jesus, a disciple, a, a Christian. Um, it could be something you've observed. Um, I'll, I'll start with my story just to kind of prime the pump, and, and, um, and then you could be thinking about your own response to this. So uh, when I became a follower of Jesus, uh, it didn't happen until I was... Uh, in, about 18, going on 19. And um, I would say that prior to that time, I was a theist, okay? Not an atheist, I was a theist, which means that I believed in God. Uh, In fact, I believed in Jesus, and I I actually was pretty biblically literate. I I knew quite a bit of scripture because I grew up in a Christian family. Uh, I attended Christian churches my entire childhood, uh, so I was there Sunday mornings, usually Sunday nights too. Back then, that was the 80s. That's how we rolled, 70s and 80s. Um, we were there Wednesday nights. And, and not only that, I attended a private Christian school. So I was getting chapel during the week and Bible class during the week. So I was immersed in theism and in the Christian faith, but I had not surrendered my life to Jesus. And the reason why is this. There was, really, for me, it was twofold. One is that I wanted to stay in control of my own life. I, I did not want anybody telling me how to do anything in my life. I wanted to make my own decisions about every aspect of my life, and I didn't want somebody else to have that authority in my life. That's, that was me. And additionally, I had this fear that if I did surrender my life to God, that he would ask me to do things that I did not want to do. And so for me, it was twofold. It was, it was control. If I could summarize it, I would say control and fear. Those were obstacles to me surrendering my life to become a follower of Jesus. What about you? We have some, uh, here's one from online. We have selfishness. I could, I could have owned that as well. <laughs> selfishness, yes, absolutely. What else do we have? What is it? Fellow Christians. Sometimes, sometimes uh, other followers of Jesus can be an obstacle. Yeah, unfortunately. 
Same thing we hear if you're poor examples of Christians or misinformation about beliefs. Sometimes people are rejecting something that's not actually the true gospel. It's something that's been presented as the Christian gospel. And so that can be very disorienting, can it? It's so discouraging when you know that someone's rejecting uh, what they think is Jesus and it's not Jesus at all. That's very discouraging. What else? Was that? Zabajibinkum? Yep. <laughs> Unforgiveness, thank you. We have an interpreter on the front row. <laughs> Unforgiveness, yes. Yeah. Sometimes, for example, sometimes, sometimes things happen in this world and we blame God for them and we think, how could God allow that to happen? And it keeps us from wanting to surrender our lives to a good God. Fear of judgment. Yeah. Do you want to unpack that? I can unpack that for you, but I don't know if I don't know if I know what you're saying. Right. Right. Being judged. Okay. Worldly passions and desires. Humanity gets in the way of being true image bearers of God. Absolutely. It's not a cool thing to do. I feel cool. <laughs> no, Lee, you're right. It's not, and, and especially like in, in our culture today, there was a time in, in America where it was actually, there was, even if you weren't sincerely a follower of Jesus, there was some cultural benefit to identifying, self-identifying as a Christian. And that is pretty much dried up, right? Feeling unloved. Yeah, that can be a barrier to faith. Lack of trust. I could own that. Okay, we're going to do one more online and one more in the room. So here, the American dream. The American dream can be an obstacle to becoming a follower of Jesus. That was actually kind of what I was struggling with. I saw a hand over here. Who was that? Yeah. Shame, and what's yours? Yeah. It's not fun? Yeah. Not fun to be a Christian. That's the excuse. All right. Um, that brings me to the title of our message this week. We're in this, this series in the latter half of the book of Mark, and we've kind of put the banner over this whole series of follow me, which when we say follow me, we're talking about follow Jesus, not follow any whoever's teaching that particular Sunday. Okay? Follow me. And, and this particular week, it's into uh, trusting surrender. Follow me in trusting surrender. And today in this passage, what we're going to see is we're going to learn about one man's obstacle to becoming a follower of Jesus. And I just want to say, I believe that as we look at his story, it's not just about, about hearing his story about something that happened some 2,000 years ago, but I think there's an implied invitation for us to consider our own story, to consider whether or not we are in fact followers of Jesus, to consider uh, maybe we signed up to follow Jesus, but maybe we've kind of dropped off and lagged behind or, or stalled out. We're not just talking about becoming a follower of Jesus. We're talking about staying one. And I think there can be barriers to coming to faith, but additionally, there can be barriers to continuing on and, and maturing in the faith. And so there's, some, there's, some, there's an implied question here today that we're going to be asking. We want to continue to growing as, in the words of Dallas Willard, he wants to find discipleship like this. He said, discipleship to Jesus is learning to live our lives from him like he would if he were us. 
In other words, if Jesus became incarnate and he had my situation, lived in my time, in my family, with my shaping influences, how would he live? What, who would he be? What would he become? And we're asking that question. Call it living in trusting surrender and obedience. So we're going to turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to pick up in verse 17. And it says, as he, meaning Jesus, as he was setting out upon his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, this first verse establishes the context and it sets up an encounter, an exchange that Jesus is going to have with this individual. And um, Mark tells us that this encounter happens right as Jesus is resuming his journey. This is really important in terms of understanding where Jesus is heading right now, because we know from the previous passage that the journey he's on is that he's making his way towards Jerusalem. Uh, some of the gospels, when, they, when describing this uh, aspect or this time in Jesus' ministry, they, they say that his face was set on Jerusalem. That's a way of saying he's intently, intently and very deliberately marching towards Jerusalem, although he knows what awaits him there. So here's the map. We've looked at this map before. Uh, this is Jesus' final journey from northern Israel down to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem's south, but it's always, we always talk about Jerusalem. In the, biblically, it's always going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was set on a hill. So it's south, but you're going up. So Jesus is going up south to Jerusalem. And um, so over the last few weeks, we saw him leave northern Israel. Uh, and he was heading that direction. Last week's passage actually had him on the east side of the Jordan over there in Perea. You see that over there to the, to the east. But now he's resuming his journey towards Jerusalem. And here's the thing. Jesus knows that when he gets there, he will be handed over by the religious leaders to the Romans, and he will be crucified. And he's, he's already forewarned his disciples about that two times. He's going to do it one more time in today's passage, very, very bluntly. And they don't get it. They, well, and they don't get it because they don't want to get it. They don't want to believe what he's saying, so they're hoping that when he's talking about, about dying and, and all of that, that he's talking in riddles again. This is just more parables, more riddles, more metaphors. Jesus is so mysterious. He's actually being really direct and clear. But what this has to do with is their expectations and their hopes. Their hope is that when they arrive in Jerusalem, Jesus will be publicly revealed and declared to be the Messiah, which means the rescuer, the one that they've been waiting for, the long-awaited Messiah who will deliver them from their Roman oppressors and establish God's good rule here on earth, the way it should have always been. And it's all going to be centralized in Jerusalem and extending out into the known world. So that's their expectation. So they don't, they're having a hard time wrapping their minds around this idea of Jesus going there and dying. They, they see him going and becoming their Messiah. So back to our passage, Mark 10, 17. So again, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, so here's the scene. Jesus is setting out for Jerusalem. He's got a, a crowd of disciples with, they're all kind of brimming with anticipation. They're, they're with him. And as they're move, making their way out, a man comes running up and the whole kind of journey just kind of stops right there. And this man comes running up. We don't know why he runs, but it would, it would say that there's some sort of urgency to it. I'd suggest that, that he's heard that Jesus is on the move again. And because of what he expects will happen in Jerusalem, there's some urgency to the question that's on his heart. His question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, what do you think that means? What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? We, we typically hear that, and in our 21st century Western Christianity, we typically hear that and we think he's asking, how do I know that I'm going to heaven when I die? And that's not the, 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 that has not a framework within his worldview and the worldview of their day. Pastor Mike addressed this really well in our devotions this week. Um, if, you, if you're not familiar with our model, uh, we have d- devotions throughout the week that prepare us for the passage we're going to be in on Sunday. So you can find those on our website under learn. And um, but here's, here's his question. His worldview and the prevailing expectation of the Jewish nation was that when the day of the Lord came, when the days of the Messiah ushered in the day of the Lord, this world will be completely renewed. They, they sometimes called it the day of the Lord. Sometimes they called it the age to come. But there was an expectation that God was going to break into the human experience and establish his kingdom once again on earth. That as it should have been back in Genesis 1 and 2 when God was ruler over all creation, that that, that would be reestablished and Genesis 3 would be undone. So that's their expectation. They're not thinking about some sort of ethereal, uh, I'm going to be floating around playing a harp in the sky or the clouds. What he's thinking is Jesus is going to Jerusalem and he's going to begin the the day of the Lord. He's he's, He's going to usher in the age to come and I don't want to miss out. That's what he's asking. That's why there's urgency because Jesus is heading there. And it's all, it's happening. You, you, they've got this excitement. It's happening. Okay? Eternal life in his mind was not just, not only about what happens when he dies. That was part of it. So it's, but it's not just a, a, a quantity of life. It's a quality of life. When God makes all things new, when, when the day of the Lord comes, when, when uh, the age to come has broken into this current age, there's goodness. There's abundance. There's no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pandemics, no more death. And he doesn't want to miss out on that. It's possibly just around the corner. My PowerPoint is locked up here. Sorry. Um, where were we? 1018, thank you. Had to restart here. Jesus said to him, so this is Jesus' answer. So his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Well, you, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So to his question, what must I do? Again, he's asking what, what does he do on his side? Jesus first responds with several of the, of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't respond with all of them. Okay, there's, you can number those. There's not ten there. There's six. So, so he doesn't name all of them. He names some of them. Let's look at the list. So Ten Commandments, I just took these out of Exodus 20. These are in order as they, as they show up in Exodus 20. And what I did is I bolded the ones that Jesus actually names in this moment. And it seems like Jesus is just kind of, he says, well, you know the commandments. And he just refers to enough of them that it's very clear that he's talking about the Ten Commandments. And, this, and, and, and um, he names five, five through nine. And then it may be that Jesus is talking about number 10 is named as well. Uh, Jesus says, do not defraud. 
which that exact language is not actually in Exodus, but if anybody can reframe them, Jesus can. So it's entirely possible that that 10 is still, should be bolded as well. But here's what he says. Jesus says, you will, you know, the commandments. And he says, teacher, all of these things I have done since my youth. Now we find out in the book of Matthew, this encounter, this exchange Jesus has with this man is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three tell the story. Matthew adds the fact that he was young. Okay, this is not this is not some you know gray-haired you know older Pharisee guy. This is a young man. Luke adds that he was a ruler, meaning that he had positional power. He had societal authority. We don't know exactly what his position was, but he had clout. He had influence. And we're about to find out that he's very very wealthy. He he has everything he needs and everything that he doesn't need. So. We put it all together, he's the rich, young ruler. And he responds with relief, and he says, I've obeyed all those things my whole life. I was hoping you would say that, Jesus. Right? I, was, I was hoping you would name those ones. So here's this guy who has it together. We would, we would look at this man and say, wow, he's got it all. He's arrived. And that's what they would have said in the first century culture as well. I mean, think about it. He's He's young. And already he's attained power, influence, status. He's, he's already climbed the ladder. He's, he's doing really well. We find out that he has material wealth. And as Tim Keller would say, he would phrase what, what he just described. He said, not only does he have material wealth, he's got moral wealth. He's, he's a good guy. He does it the right way. He hasn't got there by cheating. He's actually one of the good guys. He's doing it all right. And so he feels fairly good about himself. He has a good reputation. Seemingly he has it all, but there's one thing that he doesn't have. There's one thing that, that he, he can't grasp onto yet. What is it? It's peace. He doesn't have peace in his heart. He doesn't have assurance that he's right with God. He's asking, I, I, I feel like I've done all these things, and if we're, if we're grading on the curve, it seems like I'm doing pretty good. I look around, and I'm better than that guy and better than her. And so he can kind of look around, and it never really brings assurance. He doesn't know, which is why if Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to usher in the age to come, he comes running and says, Jesus, um, I don't want to miss out. I, what do I have to do? Have you ever asked those questions? Have you ever wrestled with whether or not you have peace about your status with God? Maybe you've asked the question the way it's phrased, the way we would have phrased it. We, we hear that man's question. We think he's asking if he, know, if he knows he's going to go to heaven when he dies. I, I, you ever asked that question? I've asked that question. I'll tell you what, when, again, I grew up theistic. I grew up uh, in a Christian family, attending church, going to school, and I knew I had not surrendered my life to God, that's a scary place to be. I think it's actually much easier to be an atheist and never be confronted with those questions, never to wrestle with those questions, just to believe it's all, you know, happenstance. And I think it's easier to do that than to be theistic and, and not know. And to actually maybe, maybe know, actually, it's not that I didn't know, I, I, I knew I wasn't right with God. Every now and then something happens that triggers us to ask those deeper questions. 
For this man, it was the knowledge that this, this long-awaited thing that someday God was going to send the Messiah. And this, the Jewish people had been waiting for this for centuries. Their prophets had been prophesying about it for centuries. And at last, it seems like it's here. And so all of a sudden, he's going, oh, I need to ask the question. For me, when I was 15, one of my best friends that I'd grown up with in those private Christian schools from fifth, age five all the way up through ninth grade was killed in a car accident. He was, he was riding his bike home from my house the day we got our driver's license. And he was riding his bike uh, up by Capitol High and coming down the Glenwood Hill right up here and was hit by a car and was killed. And our whole class in a Christian school was rocked by that because most of us knew all about God, knew about Jesus, and knew quite a bit of Scripture. And at least the guys in our friend group, we were not surrendered to Jesus started us asking some questions. When we had moments of honesty, we would ask him questions. Do you ever ask the question? Let's see how Jesus responds to him. When he says, Jesus, I've done all that. I was hoping you would say that. Jesus responds and he says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Okay, first of all, note that Jesus really sees this guy. He's not just treating him like some sort of random rich young ruler. He pauses and he looks at this guy and he sees into his heart. He gazes into him and Jesus loves him. He's drawn to this man. So what he says is not intended to harm And he also doesn't use this man. He could have said to him, hey, you know what? You could bankroll this whole thing. Just come with us. Bring bring your wealth with you. He doesn't manipulate or use him. He actually speaks the most loving thing he could. And he says, what you have, you need to get rid of. Go sell everything. Liquidate the, the, the portfolio. Sell the condo, the Tesla. You know, get rid of the boat. Liquidate it all. Donate the money to a nonprofit charity and come follow me. And Mark tells us that in that moment, the rich young ruler who had it all together, his world came crashing down. He walks away, it says, disheartened and sorrowful. The, the better translation might be that he walked away grieved. And I want to tell you this it's not just because he had great possessions, it's because his great possessions had a hold of him he was in the grip of his great possessions. Let's look back at the full listing of the Ten Commandments. Jesus had previously left some commandments unspoken, unnamed, almost implied, including the very first one, you shall have no other gods before me. What did this young man just discover? What did Jesus lovingly just challenge him with that surfaced something in his life where he wasn't obeying the commandments? reality is he was disobeying the very first commandments. He had something in his life that was more important than God. If, if obedience to God meant following and obeying Jesus, then there was something else that was more important. There was a little God that had preeminence over God. He was discovering that he was disobeying the very first commandment. And the power of that little God in his life was too much for him to break. This command was just one that he could not do. 
Of all the ones that he could do, there was one that he couldn't do in his own strength. This guy has always been self-reliant. He's always been able to do whatever, whatever he set out to do, he has done. And now he's discovering something that he can't do. And so what does he do? He's got a choice in this moment. He could chase this with Jesus and say, Jesus, I, what you're asking is so hard. How do I do that? But he doesn't push in further. He turns and walks away, grieved disheartened, discouraged. Now, that's not Jesus' intent for him. And, and I'll just say this. We don't know how his story ends. We just know how this one episode ended. I want to believe that he can, this was a kingdom seed that was planted. The nature of this, Jesus has said, the nature of the kingdom is this. A man plants seeds and then he walks away and he doesn't know when it's going to bear fruit or why. So I, I want to believe that there was a kingdom seed planted in this man's heart that later bore fruit. But in this moment, he walked away. The self-reliant, self-made man walks away defeated because he can't do what Jesus told him he must do, leaving Jesus to reflect on what just happened. So, so there's Jesus and the crowd around him, primarily his disciples, and he's watching this man walk away. I think Jesus' heart's heavy because he, he loves this guy. Again, he wasn't trying to shame him, guilt him, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it would be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Okay? They're amazed because this does not fit their worldview. Listen to what he said. Jesus has said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. This whole thing about rich people can't, it's hard to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard for them. They said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus observes to the disciples how difficult it is for those with wealth to secure life in his kingdom, eternal life. He says, it would be easier to shove the largest of animals through the smallest of openings. And, and people have wrestled with this over the years. They've wrestled with this statement, and they've tried to explain it away a number of different ways, including that there's a gate in Jerusalem. That Actually, that, there is a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. It showed up like 300 years later. So this is not... Jesus, is, he really is saying this is hard. He's, he would say to us, it's easier to drive a semi through a pinhole. Because he's, he's not trying to say it's difficult. He's trying to say it's impossible. And they got it, Right? They were amazed and exceedingly astonished because their mindset was that wealth was a sign of God's pleasure and blessing. They, they look at this man who's got it all and they think, oh, God must be blessing him. But now Jesus is calling his wealth an obstacle. He's actually saying it's an insurmountable wall, leaving them to wonder, well, then if that's the case, who can be saved? Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, it is impossible. But for God, not with God, all things, all things, all, all there in the Greek means all. All things are possible with God. And that's the point. There's absolutely nothing anyone can do. The question that this man began with was, what must I do? And there's nothing, as much as he tried to obey the commandments and live right and, and do all the right things and was a moral upstanding guy, he couldn't do there was something that he simply could not do. 
But that's the very thing. The very thing that is impossible for us to do, the biggest obstacle or barrier, is the thing that God is not only capable to address himself, but he's actually eager to do. Again, Jesus is steadfastly marching to Jerusalem. His face is set on Jerusalem because he wants to redeem mankind. And what's impossible for mankind to do on our own strength, he's going to do on our behalf. Verse 28, Peter, a little quick little aside, Peter began to say to him, see, uh, we've left everything and followed you. <laughs> Peter's always the first to say something. Even if he doesn't know what to say, he says something, anything. See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, with, with persecutions, by the way. And in the age to come, there it is, age to come, eternal life. The many who are first will be last and last first. Jesus, he's not giving them an answer for everything. He is allowing their world to be rocked, their worldview about how things are to be rocked. Peter says that we've left everything. Maybe we didn't leave as much as you're suggesting to this guy that he should leave. But we left a lot. We left our fishing boats. We left our families. We left our, you know, our households, comfort zones, plans. Here's what Jesus assures Peter and the disciples. Basically, he assures them, whatever it costs you to follow Jesus, you will never find yourself on the wrong side of that equation. That's why it says hundredfold. He, he has this laundry list where he names all these things. The point is that whatever it costs you to follow Jesus, whatever that obstacle is that keeps you afraid, that keeps you thinking, no, I've got to, I've got to hold on because I don't want to, to, to trustingly surrender my life to God. Whatever that thing is, you will never find yourself on the wrong side of that equation if you give it. There's no cost you can pay that will ever outweigh what you get in return. There's nothing. There is persecution in this life, which is not an abstract promise as they're heading to Jerusalem. So Mark continues with this last foretelling of what's waiting in Jerusalem. Mark 10, 32. And they were on the road, so they resumed the journey, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. This is a big moment. This is a decisive moment. Taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Which brings us back to the idea that what is impossible with man is, in fact, possible with God. And not only is God capable to address our inadequacy as people, our frailties, our fears, our, the things that we grasp and, th and hold on to, not only is, he possible, is it possible for him to pry those things open, but he's eager to do that. Jesus is marching to Jerusalem to lay down his life for this man that he loves and for all else who will respond in trusting surrender. Jesus, the Son of God, is deliberately heading to Jerusalem to lay down his life in order to secure the thing that this man most wanted but could not get through his own self-reliance. 
This man wanted assurance that he was right with God, that he, had, that he would share in all the goodness of the age to come when God established his rule and all things were made new. Jesus is actually offering up his death in order to secure new life. And it's a life that cannot be earned. It can only be received in trusting surrender. Here's the thing. This, this rich young ruler, what he needed to renounce was his self-reliance. The, the thing that wealth gave him the, the appearance that he was self-reliant. It kept him, and that's why, that's, Jesus isn't condemning all, all wealth, but he's saying it's hard because wealth makes you self-reliant. And in order to come to Jesus, you have to renounce your self-reliance. The rich young ruler needed to renounce his self-reliance and ask for Jesus' help in doing what for him was an impossible thing to do. He could have patterned his response after the father in chapter 9 who cried out, remember this guy, he said, I believe, help my unbelief. This guy could have said something along those lines. He could have said, Jesus, I, I surrender, help my unsurrender. I, I, I want to let go, but help me pry open my hands. I see I have something else in your place. I see that there is a God before me, before you in my life. Please heal me. Take your rightful place in my heart. It's the type of things he could have asked. The invitation for us today is to choose which pattern we will follow. Will we live as theists, trying to do the right things in order to secure God's favor and never having actually peace? Always wondering if we've done enough. Like, if he grades on the curve, have I done enough? Jesus would say to you, you'll never have peace, you'll never have assurance if the question is, what must I do? But if you flip the question and say, Jesus, I receive in faith what you have done, you can have peace. You can have assurance. Since that moment that I surrendered my life to God at 18, there's a lot of things I, I haven't had. There's a lot of things I have had. One thing I have is peace. I don't wonder anymore. There's, there's a lot of mystery to the faith. I don't... I don't really know what's on the other side of eternity. I don't really know what that's like. I wonder about a lot of things. I wonder about how are we going to know each other. There's a lot of things I wonder. But I never wonder if I'm on the right side because it's not about me. It's no longer about me. It's about Jesus. And he has given me his righteousness. Today we're going to receive communion. It's the opportunity to respond, recognizing that, that what Jesus did in Jerusalem was not just about that moment. It ripples out and is an opportunity for every one of us to respond. The invitation is to choose which pattern we will, we will choose. Will we choose to follow Jesus in trusting surrender? Will we allow him to, to expose our, our blind spots? Will, will we allow him to lovingly consider us and say, here's what it looks like for you? It won't always be, it won't always be money. If, 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 if money is not a big issue in your life, which could be because you have it or it could be because you don't. It can be an issue regardless. But it may not be that he's putting his finger on that. This is the only guy, this is the only individual that Jesus said gave this instruction to. But there's something in each one of us that's a barrier. Will we open our hearts to receive his righteousness and faith, to stand on what he did, not what we have or have not done? As we prepare to receive communion, um, first of all, if you're, if you're online, hopefully you got that message and you're ready for this. Uh, if you're on campus and you'd like to receive communion, but you didn't get uh, communion as you came in the door, would you just raise your hand and our ushers will come around and 
make sure everybody has one. Just keep your hand up until there's one of these in your hand. I'm going to put a few questions up. I, I just felt like I wanted to put a few questions up that, that give us each a chance to consider this. And some questions may be relevant for you, some may not be. So if we can put those up on the, the board there. Here's the questions. What one thing feels like too big of a cost to you to pay to follow Jesus? Secondly, what, what self-sufficiencies or inadequacies are barriers to you either following Jesus or maybe continuing in trusting surrender? What's clenched in your hands? What do you need Jesus' help to pry loose? What grace is released through receiving communion in faith and trusting surrender? In a moment, we're going to receive communion and we're going to actually take in the bread and, and the, the cup that symbolizes Jesus' broken body and the blood that was poured out on our behalf. And we believe that there's grace released, that this is more than symbolic. There's actually grace released when we receive this in faith. And we can come with whatever things are the barriers to us going deeper with Jesus or beginning to follow Jesus with the assurance that whatever it costs us, and it will cost us something, Make no mistake, it will cost us to become a follower of Jesus. We will never regret it. Jesus promises you will never find yourself on the wrong side of that equation. If you come and trust, look what Jesus did. Can we trust ourselves to someone who laid down his life and endured everything that happened on the cross? Physically, spiritually, everything that happened. He did that out of love we receive that? So I just want to make a little bit of space. Before we actually receive communion, I just want to make a little space for us to hold our hearts before Jesus and say, Jesus, would you look at me as you looked at that man and loved him and then you spoke what he most needed to hear? Would you allow Jesus to speak to you? As we do that, the worship team is going to just sing a song over us. You're welcome to join in. I'd invite you to close your eyes, to just get alone with Jesus for a moment. This was a, a public moment that had a very personal encounter. Holy Spirit, would you come? search our hearts? Would you awaken our hearts? Would you reveal to us the blind spots? Would you give us faith for the things that we know are barriers, but that we've not been able to get past in our own strength? Would you give us the faith to hold those things out to you, to invite you into the very circumstances of our lives, of our hearts, of our fears, of our hopes.
all that is within I lay it all down For the sake of you, my King I'm giving you my dreams I'm laying down my rights I'm giving up my pride For the promise of new life And I surrender Wednesday's devotions, Pastor Mike wrote, imagine Jesus looking at you hard in the eye and loving you. And then with the most tender of tones, he says, one thing is left. Go and... I suspect that whatever goes in that blank is something that's hard to do something that we can't do on our own strength, something we can't do without just simply surrendering it. Saying, I, I surrender, help my unsurrender. Inviting Jesus into all that we are, all that we are and all that we're not yet. So you prepare to receive communion. As we do that, before we actually receive, I want to just give an opportunity. I believe there's some in here today who, as I shared my story of being somebody who believed in God and actually had a worldview that included Jesus and Scripture, but I wasn't actually surrendered to him. I knew I wasn't a follower of Jesus. You resonated with that. And you too struggle with having peace. 
because you're still wondering what you have to do. And what you'd like today is to surrender to Jesus and have the assurance that he has done everything. And your job is to now follow him in responsive love. Maybe that in that sense, today's taking communion today, receiving communion is the first time that you've done it in order to respond to Jesus as a disciple, as a follower, as one surrendered. If that's you, would you just raise your hand right now? And I just want to pray over you for the peace and the assurance that as you respond in faith today, as you receive what Jesus did for you, that you can let go of the uncertainty because he has done it all. See some hands around here. If if you're near somebody who has their hand up, just put your hand on their shoulder. We're just going to pray as we receive this together. If you're online, if you you can... uh, kind of raise your hand by saying something in the chat box. But you can also just do this in the quietness of your home or office, wherever you are. Lord Jesus, for those who are responding and saying, I don't want to be like that man who walked away discouraged. I want to be like the father who gave you what he had and you met him there. I want to surrender everything that I am in order to receive that everything that you have, that you You gave your life for me. You died the death I should have died in order to give me the life that I could have never lived. Jesus, we long as a people, we long for everything that eternal life represents. We long to to join in the age to come with you. Lord, thank you that you have made a way where we couldn't. So Lord, for those who are are raising their hands today and responding in faith, would you flood their hearts, Holy Spirit, with assurance? May they be born again this moment and with a new empowerment, hearts made of flesh, hearts freed from not only the guilt of sin, but the power of sin. And now Jesus, as we followers again come to the table, we acknowledge that what you did as you marched to Jerusalem, you did with your eyes set on each one of us. That you loved us and you were willing to do what we couldn't do. You were willing to take our place. And so today we receive that in faith. We receive your body that was broken. We receive your blood that was poured out. And we say, thank you. Thank you for forgiveness. Would you also empower us through your grace for a life that is increasingly pleasing to you for a life of obedience, for a life of trusting surrender. So we receive this provision now with faith, with joy, and with peace. Amen. you're on campus, would you stand up with me, and um, if you can, and worship team, could you lead us in that song one last time? And uh, let's go out of here with peace, with joy, uh, with lives committed to worshiping Jesus, with lives committed to walking and trusting surrender, and then let's go out and make the invisible God visible to others. 
Let's not be people who live in a way that puts an obstacle to faith in Jesus. Let's live in a way that is winsome. It shows how incredibly attractive our God is. Amen? Amen. Uh, we're going to sing this song. That's our closing. If you came today and you have needs, uh, we may have some words for prayer put up on the screens. I don't know if we have any. If we do, um, if you see yourself in there, you're welcome to come up for prayer. But if you came this morning and you would just like somebody to pray with you, we have uh, a school that's currently in a ministry training school uh, of students that are glad to pray with you. We have a prayer team that's glad to pray with you. And um, we don't want you to leave here um, without being able to, to share in that. So... Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.